Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. All this week on the program, we're listening back to some of the conversations we've had on our show over the past years, ones that really stuck out to us. Today, producer Matt Alvarez is joining me in the studio to share some of the shows that stood out to him over the last few months. Matt joined the NPR News team in August, so he's one of our newer producers. Good morning, Matt. Hey, good morning. Hi. Have you had fun working on these talk shows? Uh, A whole lot of fun, Angela. It's actually just been one of the best experiences that I've had in Minnesota so far. Oh, that's good. That's good. So you picked a show that talks about the benefits of physical activity and movement. So what do you like about uh, researching and working on that show? Sure. Well, exercise is something that I'm kind of passionate about. I've been more <laughs> passionate about it the last couple of years. And that's because I kind of do some sort of movement every day. And really, you know, it can kind of help us fight depression, boost immunity and live longer lives. But, you know, as we go into the winter months, it gets a little harder and harder to keep going to the gym or at least doing some sort of movement at home. Harder to do, but more important to do right. in the dark winter months, right? Right. So um, I wanted to see how, you know, we can stay motivated. And when I started looking into it, the CDC kind of recommends about like 150 minutes of exercise per week. And that's about 20 minutes a day. Or if you do five workouts a week, that's about 30 minutes for each of those workouts. So it seems achievable, but it's also, <laughs> you know, it's kind of hard to get started. Right, right. Uh, so how did you go about booking the show? Because, I mean, that can be a sensitive to- topic, you know, telling people, you need to move every day. So what were you thinking as you were looking for guests? I wanted people that would not only motivate me, but I felt like could really motivate our listeners. So originally, when I thought about this show, I was like, thinking about how fitness has kind of like evolved and how we get our fitness information. Mm -hmm. It seems to be like all over social media. It's all over the apps. It feels like we're really trying to get people to move. But, you know, it's kind of hard for a lot of people to just get started. There's a lot of stigma when it comes to actually stepping in the gym. And it's hard to go every single day. And especially after that first workout, you're probably going to be really sore if you haven't worked out muscles, you haven't worked out in a really long time. So I wanted people that would really kind of like lift us up and show us and tell us why we should at least get some sort of movement in every day. And 20 minutes kind of seemed really achievable and possible for everyone. So you want to guess who would motivate our listeners, right. experts. So who are we? Who will we be hearing from this hour? Sure. So uh, Gretchen Reynolds, she's a health columnist that, who focuses on exercise and fitness. She's also the author of The First 20 Minutes, Surprising Science Reveals How We Can Get Exercise Better, Train Smarter, Live Longer. And Gretchen writes for The Washington Post. And I was also able to find Jennifer Holbein. She's an assistant professor of kinesiology at St. Olaf College. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was actually just, her and I really connected when we, like, when I picked up the phone and actually spoke with her. And And yeah, and she she does research. I remember her on... um, on healthy aging initiatives, mm-hmm. right? That's her That's her jam, so yeah. to speak. All right. And so I know, I remember this. She started the conversation off um, by talking about movement and why it is, you know, really hard for us to stick to a routine. Let's listen. I think it's important to find something that's motivating for you and something that you can keep throughout the whole year. And I think in Minnesota, especially, we have winter months and they can be long and dark and it can be difficult to sustain our exercise and our motivation throughout that time. And so I think finding something that is exciting for you, but also something you can do throughout the whole year that is sustainable is really important. 
So I have to want to look forward to it and enjoy it. Yes. Yeah. And then music. Music helps me work Absolutely. out longer. And yep. I think more, work out harder. Yep. And then even, like you said, now a new platform are online classes. So Peloton, finding somebody you resonate with that kind of motivates you and uses that same music that you enjoy listening to throughout your workout. Right. And Gretchen, what have you seen about uh, why, why folks just have a hard time being consistent with uh, physical activity and exercising? Well, I think a lot of people just hate the word exercise. That's part of it. They they really do consider exercise just naturally a chore. And I think one thing that a lot of scientists are looking at is the whole idea of reframing uh, exercise as physical activity or, or even as catch up time with your friends, go for a walk. That's exercise, but it can also be social bonding. It can be time that you spend with your kids. It can be time that you spend with your spouse. It can be your free time away from all the other activities or all the other responsibilities where you can go for a walk and Mm -hmm. think, and it doesn't have to be exercise. It can be your getting away from people time. Mm, Okay, we're going to try to retire that word for the rest of the hour. I'm going to try to do my best not to say the E word. So Gretchen, the title of your book is The First 20 Minutes. Tell us what happens in those first 20 minutes of working out. Well, there's really good and, and expanding evidence that most of the health benefits of exercise, exercise again, of, of moving at mm-hmm. all, are available in the first 20 minutes. And, and that means if you get up from the couch and go for a walk, you are going to likely improve your health, your well-being a lot just by walking around the block. Uh, the first 20 minutes will give you most of the benefits. Everything else is gravy. There's no reason to stop. Then you'll still start getting or still get benefits. But most of it does happen in just getting up off the couch and moving at all. You don't have to do a lot. You don't have to be training for a marathon. You just need to be not sitting all day long. Mm. Jenny, uh, what would you add uh, to the first 20 minutes? What does science tell us about that? When we first start moving in in those first 20 minutes, we're going to increase blood flow. And when we increase blood flow, we deliver more oxygen and nutrients to your tissues and your brain. And this elicits the brain to produce more of that feel-good chemical, those endorphins, and reduces the production of our stress hormones, which would be like cortisol. And then those first 20 minutes, we have that runner's high. And again, you don't have to run to get this runner's high, but you start to have these endorphins and reduce stress hormones. And that is what's happening in those first 20 minutes that gives you those benefits that are not only physical but mental. And I found uh, you know, working out on an elliptical machine or a treadmill, the first 20 minutes also the hardest. Yeah. But then once I, I push pat, past that, when I get into like that 25 uh, to 30, 35, 40 minutes, uh, it flows easier. Like that that first 20 minutes is sort of like the, the biggest hill, so to speak. Is Absolutely. That- Getting okay. started, like Gretchen said, just stand up. That's our first, our first stand up. Yeah, just stand up. Just start. Um, we have, when I worked uh, with Dr. James Levine, we had kind of a motto of, of let's stand first. Let's just start there and then stand more often. And then the third step is once you're up, let's move. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the barrier of starting is just getting those first few minutes in and starting that blood flow and getting us motivated to move forward. 
I love that. Gretchen, why did you want to write a book about the science of exercise? You're, you're already writing, you know, for, for newspapers. You're, you're busy. Why did you want to write a book about this? Well, I, I wanted to write a book because I, I write every week and I write mm-hmm. generally about one study. And it's really hard in that space and that time frame to sort of connect up the ideas and get across the idea that 20 minutes really will have a huge impact, that doing anything, anything at all, walking up the stairs is better than sitting there. And and also to answer that frequent question that I get, and I'm sure all the scientists get, which is, you keep telling us one thing this week and another thing next week. Um, it, it, and so I wanted in the book to try and put together what science now tells us about how much and why to move. And and, and that keeps changing. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I still write every week because we are learning more every week about how much and how little we probably need to do to stay healthy. Uh, let's take a phone call uh, from, let's see, uh, West St. Paul. We have Carolyn on the line. And, and Carolyn, what do you want to share with us about this? I wanted to share that it. Um, I established a consistent workout pattern. I decided three years ago, September 30th, 2019, that I was sick and tired of uh, just not getting out there and being consistent. And I started out wanting to do 90 days. And today will be day 1,130 of not missing a day. Oh, okay. Tell me again, how many days again? 1,130. All right. Congratulations, Carolyn. Thank you for sharing that. So so what is, is keeping you consistent and moving and going? It sounds really goofy, but I have a wall calendar I buy every year, put it on the kitchen wall and mark what I've done and mark it off with a big old black Sharpie. And that in itself is it, it causes momentum. You don't want to miss the next day. Uh, alongside of that, I have accountability partners. Mm-hmm. I also have um, just decided it's sort of like this fitness ministry that I want to help older people because I just turned 60 last year and I want people to see it doesn't matter how old you are it's never too late to get out there and get healthy Mm -hmm. and I struggled for years with anxiety and depression alongside of obesity and I have gotten fit and beyond the fit I no longer deal with any of the anxiety and depression I used to deal with so it's not about whether or not I'll do it. It's when do I get it done during the day. Mm. And I mean, even when I have COVID, I had COVID. So I got out there and I walked two miles just to get something in, in the sunshine, et cetera, et cetera. So, well, Carolyn, thank you so much for calling. You've shared so much. And congratulations on your 1,130 days of working out consistently. Uh, Carolyn says she got a Sharpie and a calendar and she got to it. And, and you've been nodding a lot there, Jenny. What did, what did she say that stands out to you? Having a goal, something that, and for some people, that's a check mark. So you make your boxes and your list for the day and being able to cross that off. So it's a part of your daily activities or daily checklists. And I think that was it's a great thing. She also mentioned that social community or having accountability. Studies have shown that 60% of individuals that have an accountability partner, they are more likely than to not miss a day and keep with it. And I think those two things are the key factors in keeping motivated with your goals. So that friend who texts you like, I'm going to see you at class. Oh, man, really? <laughs> that helps. Exactly. Uh, Gretchen, what does science uh, tell us that, that, that you heard in Carolyn's phone call? Well, th- there was a really large study published last year where they looked at 
uh, a large group of people who belong to a gym and what kept people going to the gym or not. And what they found was that the thing that tended to make people not show up at the gym was skipping one class. Once you've skipped one class, it's so much easier to skip the next. So what she talked about, consistency, having some sense of almost responsibility to yourself, to your partner, and then also just making it a habit, just having your shoes nearby if you need running shoes or walking shoes, having your clothes set out, telling your husband, this is my time to go for a walk, go to the gym, having both the consistency and the accountability and not skipping if you've said that you will do it. If you do it, you'll probably keep doing it. Mm. And she mentioned um, having anxiety and depression and how this has helped. What does science, what do we know, uh, Gretchen and Jenny, about what the mental health benefits of regular uh, movement, regular physical activity, uh, Jenny? So when we have those endorphins that I talked about earlier released, it can reduce anxiety and ease those symptoms of depression and also allows us to feel like we can cope with what's coming our way and give us maybe some movement and ability to to find strategies, especially during that mo- that movement time. And I think it's important to also look at it as a way to disconnect. I think Gretchen mentioned that where if we can disconnect from our everyday for a little bit, that's focusing on us and a moment for us to be able to have that um, motivation then Mm -hmm. to move forward with our other daily activities and stresses. Gretchen, what can you tell us about the mental health benefits of of moving and, and being physically active regularly? Well, there's really good science that any kind of movement, just not sitting. And and again, that means walking down the hallway, two minute walking breaks are associated with much lower risks for both depression and anxiety. And it also appears to be a pretty effective treatment for people who already have experienced either depression or anxiety. And on a more positive note, there's, again, very good research showing that getting up and moving around in any way is associated with greater happiness. People immediately tend to feel better if they get up and move around. And that probably is related to blood flow to the brain, to the release of the various hormone or various um, uh, chemicals in your brain that are related to improved moods. But it also, the nice thing about it is that it happens pretty much immediately. So if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling overwhelmed, you can get up, walk around, and almost certainly will immediately start to feel better. Mm. Again, just stand up, Gretchen. (laughs) Just stand up and move. You both say that's the first step to it. I wanted to talk about different apps. There are free apps that you can do, and they even are motivating to get you outside if you wish to buy warmer clothes and want to maybe run outside or get a fat tire bike and bike outside. But cost is a big issue and can be a Mm -hmm. barrier. And so the apps 
Uh, I believe he mentioned that Peloton was expensive. I have Peloton, but I use only the app. I don't have any of their products. And they have lots of... You don't have a Peloton bike? No, I do not. You just have the app. Yep. And it's $13 a month. And that's it. And I get every single workout. So it's yoga, biking, running, motivational speaking through um, uh, outdoor walks or runs and biking. There's uh, deep breathing and meditation. So there's a wide variety of options that you can use. And it's not... You don't have to have the equipment that is there or even the iFit, which is the Apple app, the same kind of concept. So this is a, a well-known thing now, especially post-COVID, that we need these apps and these these devices that allow us that are inclusive to any cost that we can, we might have at that time. So zero to maybe $13. So it's possible to do these things without paying a lot of money. And um, just walking, walking a little bit, walking a lot, walking a long time, walking quickly. Uh, the benefits of walking. What can you say about that, Jenny? Well, we are going to have, no matter what pace you go, those benefits that we see with our continuous moderate movement is in going to be with walking as well. And so you are going to strengthen your legs, you're going to work on balance, you are going to improve your heart and your lung function. And so walking is free. It's also another option that we like to do my husband and I we go to the Mall of America and we'll walk during the winter months when Mm -hmm. it's too cold to do anything else, but we kind of want to be social a little bit. So we'll just walk all four four laps and walk. Walking has great mental and physical benefits, and it's the same as you would get with doing higher intensity activities. And I noted in your introduction, um, you, your, your specialty is clinical physiology, but you've done research on healthy aging. Yes. Uh, what What are the main things we need to know about healthy aging? I think the important thing to take away with healthy aging is these guidelines don't have an age limit to them. And the benefits we receive while we are working out or while we are doing strength training, we will still see that at any age with any background. And so according to the American College of Sports Medicine, the recommendation is all adults, no age barrier, that all adults should engage in two days of strength training and with big muscle groups, so legs, arms, and core. And so I think... What you can do sitting in a chair. You can do sitting in a chair. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You can do resistance bands. You could have little free weights. You could do your own body weight and just lift and lower your legs. And so these benefits are going to be throughout all ages. Mm. And Gretchen, anything that that you would add about um, aging and, and, and moving more? It's funny because I was actually just reading a study that began by saying there is only one proven anti-aging, um, basically medicine out there, and it is moving. It is exercise or physical activity. Um, And there's so many ways in which what we identify as aging, what we think is natural, is probably actually inactivity. It's probably caused by not moving enough. And that begins with gaining weight, losing muscle, having our memory fade, All of those things that we accept right now as a normal part of aging are at least partially uh, caused by not moving enough. So if you move more, you will have better memory, you will have better muscle mass, you will probably have better weight. So get up and move and you will definitely age better. Mm. And uh, Gretchen, what do we know about uh, people with uh, high blood pressure or uh, diabetes or other uh, illnesses, how 
movement, just standing up, moving, walking, running, how that can help? That Again, there's just uh, mounting evidence showing that a little bit of movement, it doesn't even have to be 20 minutes all at the same time. Going out for a walk after a meal, even if it's for two minutes, appears to help people with blood sugar control. It also, if you spread out your exercise, oh, let's not call it exercise, if you spread out movement throughout the day, it definitely helps with blood pressure. It, it, there, there's this concept called exercise snacks, where <laughs> you basically get up and move around for a minute or two in, in any way. It can be climbing the stairs, it can be walking down the hallway, it can be hopping in place for a few minutes. It's your exercise snack. And it is associated <laughs> with much better uh, blood sugar control, much lower risk of developing type 2 diabetes. I again, better blood pressure, as you say, and, and then also better moods. So you get all of that with your exercise snack. Jenny, five minutes, 10 minutes, spread it across the day. Really? That Absolutely. makes a difference? Absolutely. So even if you have 10 minutes at a time, you can spread that out throughout the day and you still reap those benefits. And it's it's wonderful. We don't have to throw it all in. It could be considered a lifestyle behavior modification versus our, our word of exercise. Because I'm increasing my blood flow and exactly. I'm, I'm affecting my organs in a positive way. Exactly. Right. And Gretchen, in just our last uh, minute here, I want to ask you about what we know about the benefits of regular movement and the COVID uh, vaccine that I, I've read that the, the more you move, that that can help you fight off COVID and can be effective in, in helping the vaccine be more effective. Is that right, Gretchen? Yes, that is absolutely true. It, there's very good evidence that being regularly active helped people both avoid hospitalization if they got COVID and also appears to have increased the efficacy, the, the strength of COVID vaccines when people got them. And, and that makes perfect sense because we know from a lot of science that being active increases immune uh, your immune system. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it makes you better able to fight off almost every virus. So it's one more reason, especially with winter coming on, to just get up and move in any, any anyway. way that you can. That was from a conversation I had this fall about moving our bodies more and the benefits of regular exercise. I spoke with Gretchen Reynolds, a health columnist for The Washington Post, who writes about fitness. Her book is called The First 20 Minutes. Surprising Science Reveals How We Can Exercise Better, Train Smarter, Live Longer. I also talked with Jennifer Holbein, an assistant professor of kinesiology at St. Olaf College, and she's done research on healthy aging. So, Matt, tell us about the next show that you picked. Yeah, this next show is about homework. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, did I say that out loud? Homework. What about homework? <laughs> well, you know, I I actually really struggled with homework a lot as a yeah. kid. And this was kind of an idea that we thought about as a group as to really mm -hmm. talk about as the, the school year kicked off. And I kind of remembered the struggles that I really had as a child, especially with math, as in I really needed this extra help. But instead of getting that extra help... The school that I went to in Texas didn't have the resources for tutoring or extra people to kind of just be around. So right. I kind of suffered from bad grades and it was very demotivating. Um, and then when we, when we looked into this, I kind of just wanted to see 
what can actually be done about homework and is it really necessary or how much of it is necessary for people to actually learn? Right. We asked, like, what is actually happening in schools? We wanted to know, like, how much are kids getting? Like, what's changed? Um, so how did you go about looking at who who did you choose as guests? Yeah. So this was pretty early when I started here um, and actually moved to the state. So I didn't really know a whole lot or kind of where to go. But the great thing about being part of NPR News is that we're kind of like able to tap into other resources. And we have a great education reporter, uh, Elizabeth Shockman, and she Mm -hmm. kind of like suggested a couple names. And in that list, I got in touch with David Heisted. And David has spent about 25 years as head of research, evaluation and assessment for public school districts in Minneapolis and Bloomington. Um, And Dave kind of just really opened my eyes into like how much homework is necessary and how we need to educate our kids when they're not in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a second guest as well. Yeah, Miranda Featherstone. Um, She's a writer and a school social worker who has worked with children and families from preschool to high school. Um, She's actually based in Rhode Island. All right. Well, let's take a listen. And I remember I started by asking Dave and Miranda uh, their thoughts on the value of homework. And uh, Dave started us off. Well, I think um, uh, homework uh, can be overdone. Uh, uh, Basically, I think less is more. But the homework needs to be targeted to the uh, the skills and standards that a student needs to master. It needs to be individualized, and teachers should uh, be innovative in their use of uh, homework. So uh, given the situation now post-COVID, uh, students during COVID made about a half a year's growth in a year's period of time in both reading and math. And so students need extra time to practice uh, basic skills, to, um, you know, move at their own pace and to eventually get back up to the level that they should be at. Mm, Yeah, I I like that thought about extra time to practice some basic skills. But uh, also, also you mentioned, you know, be innovative with it. Miranda, how do you describe the value of homework? Um, I would describe it as as limited, um, in particular for younger children. I think the story is a little bit different Mm -hmm. as you get into middle and high school. I think that there is value to homework, although excessive homework is still an issue. There's kind of diminishing returns on the amount of homework um, that can be useful. But I think that, you know, some reading and writing and, you know, targeted projects interventions might be useful, but I think for elementary school students, for younger kiddos, um, there really is very little value in homework. Really? Um, Is it because uh, just developmentally, they're still, you know, what very, uh, it requires a lot of focus and it's harder to do when they're at home? It requires uh, adult intervention for the most part. I mean, especially in the earlier grades of elementary school, it's really just not realistic or developmentally appropriate for younger kids to be taking responsibility for their own time. Sort of, you know, Mm -hmm. we talk about homework as a tool for building responsibility and time management skills. That's not a realistic task for a five or a Mm -hmm. six-year-old. So they're fundamentally unable to manage their time. So it becomes an adult task. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's pretty problematic, right? I mean, it's... can heighten inequalities and equities. And it's also, I think it can foster some helicoptering. That's not always exactly what we want 
from a parent-child relationship, and it can foster conflict mm. also. Miranda, did you have a hidden camera in my house uh, about a decade ago? <laughs> 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 All right. Well, you know, I had this uh, thought as I was reading about, you know, the research on homework last night. Long after, you know, many of us graduate high school, some of us still have nightmares about not finishing our homework. I'm one of those people. I mean, I, I sometimes I wake up and I and I remember and I think, oh, my gosh, I didn't I didn't study enough or I didn't finish that homework. And then I realize you're 54 years old. <laughs> this was decades ago. Um, it was just a bad dream. And I hear, you know, I've asked my friends, like, do you all ever have this dream? Um, to me, this really speaks to the stress and anxiety that can be associated with uh, schoolwork and studying for tests. And Miranda, as a social worker, uh, what have you seen about the, uh, you know, the, the mental health impact um, that homework can have on kids? And have you ever had that dream? <laughs> I don't know that I've, I've definitely had the unprepared for a test dream. Mm -hmm. I would say that's my own personal anxiety. Um, but yeah, absolutely for kids. I think homework is a huge source of stress. And, you know, some stress is good, right? Stress can be adaptive, stress can be positive. Um, but too much stress is not good at all. And I'm, you know, I imagine that most folks are aware that there's a pretty serious childhood mental health crisis at the moment that's really been exacerbated in a lot of ways by the pandemic. Um, and excessive homework is, you know, it's reliably reported as a big source of stress by high school students, and it can easily become a stressor for younger kids as well. And it can also take away from activities that help to alleviate stress, right? Like playing, being physical mm -hmm. outside, playing sports, and sleeping, right? Sleep is, is a hugely protective thing in keeping kids mentally well. And kids' sleep goes down when they're assigned too much homework. But how do we know what's excessive? That sounds subjective. You know, is, you know, 20 practice math problems, is that fine or is that excessive? We really need to have um, the kind of individualization so that some students who love to do homework can take off and do as much as they want, but um, um, students that are struggling should have um, very directed, targeted kinds of homework, and uh, they should get lots of positive feedback. So uh, ideally, young children would have a parent that could spend 10 minutes reading with them, um, and, uh, and asking questions about the, the, um, the text. Um, but there are computer programs that uh, students learn how to use in the classroom and that can actually move students at their own pace in both reading and math. And I kind of like those um, tools as an option for teachers. Mm -hmm. And Dave, you know, have you heard or experience this, this nightmare where you wake up like, oh, I, I have a test. I'm not ready for it. Does that sound familiar to you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm always going back to schools that I've graduated from and find out that I haven't showed up at class and I haven't done my, my homework. So in <laughs> dreams. it's a universal, yeah. Yeah, right. universal dream. All right. Well, I want to take some phone calls from our listeners as we talk with two educators about homework and what we're seeing today and in the past with homework. Let's uh, go to northern Minnesota and talk with Stephanie, who's already called in. Hi, Stephanie. What did you want to share with us? Hi. Yeah. So I teach at the middle school level. And so our policy is basically that we do not have any homework. And I think the lens they look through is the equity lens. We have a diverse student population. Um, and, you know, we have difficulty even getting kids into class sometimes. And so 
expecting them to do things outside of class. One, we don't know if they have the same kind of resources across the board. If we have Chromebooks, but do they have internet? Can they do what they need to do? Have they been in class enough to know what's going on? You know, it just seems like it wouldn't get done and it would just discourage students. Plus, all of our kids are in, we're a small school. We have kids in a lot of extracurriculars and they're out late. And then we expect them to do homework on top of that. It just, it doesn't seem like it's a working model for us. Well, so Stephen, I have a question have though. That. What about the students yeah. who want homework or who, whose parents are like, we need homework? Um, what, how do you address that if you have a student or family that is demanding more homework or any homework? I'll be honest, I have never had a parent or student demand more homework. I have had students who um, maybe are a little more accelerated, and so then I might have to differentiate some curriculum or give them like a more challenging scope for a project. Mm -hmm. Um, But I have never had anybody be like, my kid needs more homework. Wow. Okay. All right. Thank you. That's Stephanie in Northern Minnesota. Uh, Dave, what do you hear and what she shared? Well, I I think uh, schools can compensate, uh, find different kinds of programs that can differentiate within the regular class day or could have after-school programs for students that are struggling. I think you could do that. And I would just ask that each uh, school and district evaluate their changes in homework policy and see if it's working. So um, be innovative, try something new. Is it startling to hear uh, a a teacher or school saying, yeah, we don't do homework at all? Or is that becoming more common? I think following the the pandemic, uh, teachers have have really urged less homework and more emphasis on social-emotional skills and making sure students are okay emotionally. Miranda, um, Stephanie, our caller, who's a middle school teacher, brought up equity issues. So what have you seen um, in terms of the role homework plays and into the achievement and opportunity gaps? Yeah, I mean, I think there's quite a bit of evidence to mm -hmm. suggest that homework can reinforce inequities um, and that, you know, students who have the time and the support to complete homework are likely to do so and be graded positively accordingly. Um, And the students who don't have the time, don't have the wherewithal, don't have a quiet space, are expected to care for siblings or work at a job, are not going to be able to complete those assignments. And if the assignments are graded, it's easy to see how this can become a factor um, in making schools sort of sites of inequity even more so than they might already be. I, I did want to say, though, I have encountered parents who would like their kids to have homework. Um, I, I don't think it's super unusual. Um, but I, I think that, you know, I often, when I encounter that um, in my work life, I encourage them to reflect on other activities that their kids can be doing that will build some of the skills that they're hoping to build through homework, right? Yeah, I think um, in, in my own be, experience with my son and daughter, I... I felt like particularly, I think, with reading and math that like they they needed to practice some of what they were getting in class. And that's why I was always an advocate for like more homework. I wanted to know exactly what homework they were doing. So, you know, is there evidence that practicing things outside of class, is that helpful or is that just an old and outdated way of thinking? Yeah, I think it can be really helpful, especially in reading. Um, Mm -hmm. And all of the schools that I've worked with have leveled books so that they figure out Mm -hmm. what the instructional level of the student is, and then they find the areas of interest, and they assign 
uh, bring home books that right. are for extra practice. And like 10 minutes a day, I think, would be great for early elementary and then maybe a little bit more in um grades four and five. Yeah, you know, I've worked uh, over the years as a reading tutor in elementary schools, and I, I've just seen, you know, it, it is very in- individualized and helping kids master uh, these different levels of reading and just seeing the encouragement and just, you know, the, the confidence that goes up as they have more time to practice reading aloud and having that one-on-one time with a, an adult to move forward. Um, but, uh, Miranda, mm-hmm. when we look at reading, like practicing reading, reading aloud, reading with someone outside of school, um, I mean, it, it's helpful, but you're saying it's not always possible? It's not always possible. And I think, you know, reading, talking about reading with a parent is very different than something like tutoring. There's so much evidence to support the use of tutoring. Um, targeted reading tutoring has, um, you know, if it's three times a week for at least 30 minutes, that's mm-hmm. like one of the best interventions there is. It works. Know, with the concern. Oh, Wait. it works. It absolutely works. Um, I, I don't think that there is as much evidence for that sort of translating to home life. And you do sometimes see kids when when reading and books are made to be sort of part of an academic chore at home. For a lot of kids, they become less appealing mm-hmm. than if they're just offered, you know, high interest, high quality books um, and the opportunity to read them. So, you know, reading logs and, you know, having to, you know, complete a worksheet about the, the plot or the struggle of the characters, um, that can be detrimental. And that's that's very different than like a, you know, a targeted tutoring. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the, the danger of too mm-hmm. much homework or homework that's really not uh, targeted to, to the individual student's level. That was from a conversation I had earlier this year about the value of homework, how effective it it is, and and how it's changed over the years. I'm talking with producer Matt Alvarez about some of the shows he produced this past year. And Matt, what else have you picked out that really stood out to you? Yeah, so the last segment of this show is um, actually one of the first shows that I produced uh, well, I was kind of flying solo. Um, mm-hmm. And Angela, unfortunately, it's when you weren't here. I was um, on vacation. Yeah. But the uh, show goes on. <laughs> the show does go on. Catherine Richards stepped in to talk about retro technology. Mm-hmm. Um, for that hour, we plugged into the past and looked at why nostalgia and technology kind of makes us really happy, kind of like opening up an old Game Boy or kind of – I don't know, maybe listening to a CD. Right. Or, or maybe a cassette tape. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and then what did you hope listeners would get out of the show? Um, so, you know, I had a lot of friends that are kind of like into retro tech, but I really mm-hmm. wanted to hear from people who kind of dug out those old gaming councils from their childhood. You know, the ones that they really begged at their parents for and they said they were going to play forever. And then it just sat in a box as newer game stations kind of game, came out throughout the years. But um, people photographing and processing film with their photographs um, – over like the pandemic kind of like picked up as well. And that's what really kind of got my idea as in uh, starting with like people that really wanted to do retro tech or people that have downgraded from their smartphones to something that's a little more simple and underwhelming. So I was out of town. I have not heard this uh, this talk show. Uh, who were the guests? Yeah, so we started with Leanne Crow. Leanne is a photographer and the lab manager for West Photo in Minneapolis. Um, and West Photo is one of those few places in the twin, in actually in the state that still develops film. So mm. if you have a roll of film, you can actually take it there. Disposable cameras or you know a high end like 
a big camera, like older camera with film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can go ahead and get those developed there. Um, And film, as they told me when I went to go visit that store, is very expensive right now and hard for them to keep like on the shelves. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I looked into museums that preserve artifacts. And um, I found Vula Sadarkis. She is the curator of the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. And she is part of the team that cares for and interprets about 30,000 plus artifacts in the museum collection. And they have everything, Angela. I mean, like we're talking about the old Razor flip phones. They Mm -hmm. have them there. Um, Their technology goes way back and what they preserve. And then I found Jay McDonald. He's a retro gaming enthusiast who designs and builds corporate websites for a living. Um, He had this impressive and convincing blog on why playing old video games like Mario Kart or Sonic or maybe Crash Bandicoot. It's just more fun than kind of these high graphic games that we have today. All right. Well, let's let's listen to this. Um, here is Vulu Saradakis, and she tells us why people have gone back to making old technology part of their everyday lives. The nostalgia factor is really big um, for those especially who grew up with this kind of technology. And it's amazing to see that uh, it's become really trendy again. And um, there's, I think, also a very large segment of the population that simply wants to unplug from some of this tech For instance, when it comes to their smartphones or their laptops, and some of these uh, vintage products, I think, have a very strong cult following, but it sort of gets back to this kind of uh, tangible technology. So whether you're looking at uh, film photography or cassettes or calculators, uh, Polaroids, um, you, you don't get that kind of same tangible feeling from a smartphone, even though it really does all of these things, right? Um, but, you know, it requires more work, but in many ways, I think it can be more rewarding. And I think that's what a lot of people have uh, latched onto and what they really enjoy about it. We also have Leanne Crow. She is a photographer and lab manager for West Photo in Minneapolis. Thanks for being with us, Leanne. Thank you for having me. Okay. When you're using a camera that is not digital, explain to us sort of what the skill set is intellectually that you're accessing. Well, I think you really have to be in the moment, um, you know, and just take the time to think about the image that you're making because you're not unlimited in the amount of shots that you can take. Um, you know, I think it's just kind of one of those things that, uh, you know, you just really got to think about what you're doing. And, you know, when we have a smartphone attached to our hand at, at, at all times, it's easy to just snap a thousand shots at a, you know, at a concert or an, at an event. But, you know, when you're using film, it's like, okay, well, I have 24 pictures to take this whole night. Our first caller is Brad in Moorhead. What is the device that you love using? All right. Well, like, there's a lot of things I'm nostalgic, nostalgic for, like, you know, old Nintendo, for example. Um, <laughs> taking a picture and waiting uh, a week to get it developed, not remembering exactly what you took. It's The anticipation is just as exciting as when you were visiting. But what I want to talk about is a VCR and the idea of my buddy and I watching uh, the movie Braveheart, for example, back in the early 90s, and having to switch it to a second tape. 
the graininess of the of of the quality of the film. We actually like that better, and we thought that watching it on high def ruined it. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. And it did with a lot of other movies, too, you know? And it sounds like you have this very specific memory attached to watching that movie with your friend, that anticipation, the getting ready to switch the tape so you didn't uh, interrupt your viewing, it sounds like. Well, yeah, and having to, like, rewind it and talk about it and... You know, you can't skip ahead. Um, you know, there's just a lot of anticipation that is, it's like going to a movie theater. You don't have control over what you want to see. It just happens. And then last, I just want to say I went to Europe and I came back with 24 rolls of film. And I was like, okay, I can't wait to see what I took a picture of. Uh, I think that waiting and thinking and, and, and framing your mind around something. And uh, But the quality of the film is what, what my buddy and I really wanted to mention. Let's bring Jay McDonald into the conversation. Now, Jay, welcome to the program. It's good to be here. So you've played video games since the 70s, and you've seen them come a long way. With the video games we have now, why do you think retro gaming is so popular? I think one of the one of the things is that it's really driving this. We've talked about nostalgia, and that's a popular go-to that a lot of people want to discuss, but I think there's another thing that's at work here. And that is that people are realizing there's a broader array of options that we don't just have to be driven by what the latest and greatest is, which is really more of a marketing consideration. I, I talk about this idea of what I call the myth of progress and not that progress isn't happening, but the way in which we've built up this cultural expectation of seeing things constantly moving forward in a definitive way. And I think people are starting to realize not every move is towards something better. Maybe it's the same, or maybe there are choices that we left behind us that we should revisit. And so I think that there are a lot of people who are either going back to and rediscovering because they they experienced it in their past, or they are uh, like, someone like my daughter who's 16 and she loves playing Atari, Sega Genesis, and she has no past experience with these and she's coming to them fresh and realizing they provide a very different sort of experience than contemporary gaming. So do you feel that older video games are more fun, Jay, than newer ones? I think they can be in different ways. I I try not to put things up in a head-to-head, this is the best of everything uh, kind of a, an approach, but rather it's a broadening of options. I think that there are things that older video games bring to the table that new ones don't. New ones have become very focused on certain types of experiences. One of the things that's really big in contemporary gaming is the creation of things that are increasingly more realistic in the way they portray the reality that you're moving around in. And old video games just weren't capable of that. They didn't have the technology to make that happen. But what we find is the way in which reality was stylized, the types of experiences that were created, while they were limited by the technology, they created very fun and interesting experiences that now when we no longer have those limits, we go back and find that they're still very enjoyable and they're distinctly different than the things that are popular and on shelves today being sold. That was from a conversation from earlier this year about nostalgia tech.
All right, Matt, our time is up for today. Thank you for coming into the studio to share some of your favorite talk shows from 2022. Thank you for all the hard work that you uh, have done with our team. And and before we go, uh, what are you thinking about? What ideas are you kicking around uh, for talk shows in 2023? Yeah, so I'm really interested in like work and workforce culture. Um, I've actually had kind of a lot of odd jobs in my time. Um, And I've, you know, I've done everything in kind of retail, like where I've folded sweaters and sold sunglasses for a living. (laughs) I've worked and stocked grocery stores. I've worked fast food restaurants. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't done it all. And what really kind of fascinates me is that the impact your boss or your manager can have on your career, your creativity, and how you progress throughout life. So a good I, manager makes all the difference. Mm-hmm, and, and how it mm-hmm. affects your mental health. So mm. I kind of would really like to tap into that idea as into like, what does a good boss look like? What does a good boss do for you? And maybe how to recover from having a bad boss. Mm, I, I'm eager to have that conversation. All right. In 2023, we can look forward to that conversation and that talk show. My colleague, producer Matt Alvarez. Thanks, Matt. Be safe, everybody. Our time is up. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.